Well, hello, everybody. Steve Shepard here, and I am here today with my good friend, Bob Dean. Bob and I have known each other for probably more years than either of us care to admit. Bob, tell us a little bit about Bob. Well, Steve, I'm uh, actually a CPA by fundamental background. I started with a big eight accounting firm out of college. And uh, but I, I think one of the reasons we're here today is not because of that. It's because I uh, went to college as a journalism major, having been the editor in chief of my high school newspaper. And that's where I developed my early passion for writing. And then writing carried me through my career as both an audit professional and then later a learning and development professional. So, I mean, that, that's what's so funny. I mean, you and I met in a, in a leadership program back in the mid nineties and, and we've stayed friends ever since we've gone in a bunch of different directions, but you've had what I like to call kind of a multifaceted career. As you said, you started out as a journalism major, and then you went to work for an accounting firm, but you've also bounced around a lot and you've ultimately ended up with this very deliberate kind of direction in the world of organizational learning and human capital development and that kind of thing. How did you get there? I mean, that's a, it's an interesting leap from sort of the accountancy world to where you are today. Yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, Arthur Young, the predecessor to Ernst & Young, had a national education center in Reston, Virginia. And we recruited audit and tax professionals from around the country to come in to Reston for only 18 months. And they actually had to move there. This was pre-internet, so virtual work was unheard of. Even doing a conference call longer than two minutes was not done. So people moved to Reston, and I moved there from Oklahoma City to do this two-year residency, and then the rest is history. By the time I was ready to go back to auditing again, uh, we'd had another one of these meltdowns. This guy in town, it was the oil and gas industry in the, in the Southwest uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. So I couldn't go back because they didn't have a place for me. And instead, I stayed on in learning and development. And I went through the merger of Ernst & Young. I, when I met you, I was the head of industry learning for Ernst & Young. And then I went on to become the chief learning officer at Grant Thornton and the global head of learning at Hydric and Struggles, the executive search firm. And then after that, I started my own company. So it's now been about 10 years and it's been a good ride all the way. So I've watched this ride over the years uh, and it's been a lot of fun because first of all, I learned about a lot of companies that I didn't even know existed. And of course, you and I have gotten together in a lot of different capacities, sometimes in front of television cameras, sometimes just in classrooms, you know, whatever it may be. But one of the things that has been fairly consistent is that for a lot of years, you've beaten this sort of virtual work drum, for lack of a better for lack of a better term. The idea that if you give people the right tools and you teach them how to use them properly and you help them understand that you're not trying to do the same thing, you're trying to maybe achieve the same outcomes using different tools, you've beaten on this hard. And today, in the time of coronavirus and so on, there's kind of a, I don't know what the word would be, kind of an imperative to really go down this road even more. So from your point of view, how should organizations be thinking about this? I mean, just just kind of to set this up, one of the things you and I have talked about in the past is that um, a lot of people are having a hard time with this because, for example, somebody that spends all their time in front of a classroom, 
often has a very difficult time moving to doing what you and I are doing right now, which is a video conference to have this conversation, because obviously you're in the Chicago area, I'm in Vermont, can't do it. So what should companies be thinking about? Well, I think they need to think about how to have their employees become more skilled at virtual facilitation of meetings and virtual collaboration so they can work together meaningfully while they're working from home and get things done as a team. Whereas in the past, they might have been more in a hybrid situation where some people might have been in the office, others might have been traveling, others might have been working from home. Well, those first two options are out right now. There's nobody in the office unless you have an essential job and nobody traveling. So it's for the first time, maybe since September 11, when we quit traveling and we didn't as much go home. This is a a very unusual situation for virtual work and learning. And I'm really glad to see it here because I think people are going to come out of this, many of them, thinking, I want to keep doing this. So you and I spend a lot of time and have for years talking about the power of the written word. Sort of, you know, where's it falling flat? And, and why is this important? I mean, today we're in this era of social media and we have a plethora of communication modalities that we have access to. And so in many ways, I think you've gone down this road. I know I have. I think I could say this for both of us. We've both been driven down this sort of professional direction because there's something we want to fix. What do you want to fix? What's wrong in companies today from a communications point of view? Well, I really just want to help people to become better communicators. And I have actually taught people, as I know you have too, in presentation skills for over 30 years. And it's very exciting to do that because people, they kind of feel like when they're going through a presentation skills course that everything you can tell them they need to learn because they have a lot of anxiety over getting up in front of a group and And they don't actually get a chance to do it that much. I used to train people when we were running a week-long workshop. It gets back to my residency program. And we needed auditors to go into a classroom for a week and teach a course to 25 young auditors. Now, that's it's really a kind of a tough job when you that's not your day job. But what's interesting about getting into writing skills is that we write every day. If you go through a very good course because you recognize that you do need to improve, maybe because you haven't had any good solid writing training professionally or in college, then if you learn new things, you can apply them that afternoon or next morning. And that's really exciting because our research shows, Steve, in the courses we've run over the last two years, that if you look at a week in the life of a professional, an accountant, an engineer, they are writing more hours a week than anything else they're doing. They, we, have, we have literally done this research and every class we've run has come out with writing as number one. Now that's pretty astounding. I'm not sure I could have predicted that before we started. And, and let's, let's be clear here. And the reason this is so important is because we're not talking about necessarily creating white papers, writing articles, writing books. It's its a bunch of other things as well, right? Well, it starts with email. I mean, we've asked people, what are your writing applications? And every person will put 
in email in the response. And again, this is pre-work before our course. So they have plenty of time to think about it. And then what comes behind that is reports, it's PowerPoint, and even things like blog posts. So there's a lot of different writing applications, but they're professional applications. They're oftentimes either internal or they're for clients. And they, you make an impression every time you write. But I don't think people think about that when they're just jamming out an email under, t under pressure at 5.15 when they want to shut down their computer, right? So it's a lot of different writing applications make up that 12 to 15 hours a week. So <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, I mean, I'd love for the answer to the question I'm about to ask you to be, well, obviously take a course from, from Bob and Steve. But other than taking a course from Bob and Steve, what can people do to improve their writing as a way to differentiate themselves? I mean, what, what sort of deliberate steps should they be taking? Well, when we started to, to design and facilitate the courses we have, one of the things I was very passionate about, and I have been throughout my career, but this is virtual classrooms. And I wanted to be able to provide them with a one-page job aid at the end of the course that it basically laid out everything we covered. And it was in a in a, a way a format that they could immediately start to apply it. So they remember, oh yeah, I'm I'm supposed to look at removing wordiness from my paragraphs, and I know I've I've been taught how remove unnecessary adverbs and adjectives, take out the word of, take out the word that. I mean, this is not rocket science. So if they can practice this during the course, and then keep that job aid handy as they go back to work they can slowly but surely practice and apply. Now, what's even more interesting, Steve, is if they're doing it with their colleagues in a team, then they can give each other feedback because they have a common language. And that's exciting because that's when you really start to improve. You're, you're not only improving your own writing, but you're helping someone else as well at the same time. Funny, there's a, <clears throat> there's a quote that I've often used that says, People learn when they engage in difficult undertakings and then have the opportunity to sit back and reflect on how they're doing. And I think it ties in nicely to what you just said, this idea that says, I'm going to work really hard to learn this material and then apply the material and then have my peers review it, give me feedback, and then deliberately learn from that experience so that iteratively I become better and better and better. I mean, no one ever becomes a perfect writer. It's, you know, you and I have been writing our whole careers and there's always something new to learn. I mean, that's part of the reason we're doing this. Well, but again, what's happening in this digital world in the last, you know, five years and for the young people, it's like, well, I don't remember a time when I wasn't sitting in front of a computer doing my work is that they are by definition, sitting in front of screen, and that can be a phone too, that where they're sending an email on the phone, that they are just having writing applications for themselves every day, more and more, and that's not likely to slow down. I don't know that we're going back. I mean, some people would predict that texting and IMs is gonna overtake email. And it's interesting because there's a lot of that going on too. But if you're in a professional organization with clients who are paying you for your written deliverables, 
then I don't think a text is going to cut it. And I think, Bob, to go back to what you said a minute ago, if you what you just said, if you work for a company that's paying you for your written deliverables, I would argue that every company pays every employee for that. Because we're not, again, we're not just talking about go write a white paper. We're talking about are you communicating effectively through your emails? If you are using texting or blogging or some other social medium on behalf of the organization, even if you don't realize it as much as you perhaps should, the clarity of what you create is a reflection not only of yourself, how clearly you think and analyze and, and so on, but it's also a reflection of your organization. So this isn't just for people that want to write a book or want to write a white paper. This is for people who, one way or the other, even if it's with their thumbs, write text every day. Right. And related to that, some organizations that we work with have their own writing style guides. And these style guides are in, in global organizations meant to achieve a consistency when you are writing a, a report for a client, a global client, and it's being exchanged internally between people in three different countries. And they need to all be aware of the style guide. But what I find interesting, and this, this, is, this is difficult, we know there, there's a lot of resources that people have at their fingertips that they don't look at every day is by running our writing courses, we not only customize them for client samples, but we customize them for their style guide. So when people go to the course, they know that they are being trained in bullet points that are being laid out in the way the style guide states. And that's really exciting because not everybody goes to a style guide every time they're writing something to check I mean, we're lucky if they spell check everything, but, you know, this is uh, the potential for improving writing organizationally. That's an excellent point. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, about 15 years ago, you were certified, as I recall, in a program or a book called The Experience Economy. And you and I have had lots of conversations about the fact that one of the best ways to learn is through experience, right? The idea that you learn, a lot of people learn by doing or they learn by, through context, what it, you know, whatever it may be, right? So describe that for me. Talk to me a little bit about that in terms of, of why that's so important. Well, when the Experience Economy book came out in 1999, the authors, Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore, were observing what was happening in business. And they were seeing some highly successful new, new businesses that were growing revenue very quickly. And they were doing it by moving through commoditized goods and services and going to experiences for their customer. And one of the greatest examples of that is Starbucks. When they launched that company, the coffee industry was very small. It, it was in a cottage industry. And they looked around and said, you know, we could make this into a very strong global industry. And this morning, I saw their CEO speaking because they're one of the leaders now in coming out of the coronavirus and opening, reopening their businesses. Well, they're doing this through experiences. The customer experience at Starbucks, if you're a Starbucks fan, is strong enough that you may go there four or five times a week. And that becomes your, if you will, your third place uh, from work to home to Starbucks. Now, right now, a lot of people only have 
one place and that's at home. But that's the concept. So as I thought about that for learning, I thought about I want learning to be an experience. I don't want it to be a commodity. I don't want it to be a course that you go to and you report in that you attended, but you move on without applying anything you learned. And I call this a life-changing learning experience. And I'm fortunate enough to have had a number of those in my career. And I can look back and realize how much those experiences did for me and how I'm a different person as a result of them. So I wanted to try to use that book as inspiration to create life-changing learning experiences for people. I've done it in a number of ways over the years. It's been very exciting, including working with you. But I also believe you can do that in a virtual classroom. And a lot of people might say, how, could, how is that possible? But I'm working on that right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. So do me a favor. How would you describe a life-changing learning experience? Well, number one, it's involved a level of engagement that is what I call jumping in. You're not just ready to participate in or ready to engage, but you are ready to jump into the learning experience. And so this means strong application. It could be in the olden days of face-to-face classroom is the only option we had. It might have just been doing role plays and doing really good role plays and debriefing them. But in my experience, you didn't spend a whole day doing role plays. I mean, you might have an hour, if you will, out of an eight-hour day doing that. But that's just not enough to keep people engaged, especially in this day where we have all these distractions. Um, Even if we're sitting in a classroom, we can glance at our phone and check emails. If we're on a virtual class, we uh, we can look to another screen and check a web page to do some quick research while I'm on with you. So it, it requires even more engagement and interactivity. But the other thing it does is it requires a level of motivation from the participants that they are ready for change because in its best, learning is change. And today I believe every time somebody goes to a learning program, they're usually going because something has changed. It may be a new tax law that's come out and they have to learn it. It's imperative. They can't use the old tax law anymore. It, it, it may be that there's a new, we talk a lot about upskilling today. It may be that there's a new technology that they just simply have to learn or they'll be left behind. So change readiness, motivation for change, changing behavior, if you will, is also really important. So one of the things that's been interesting in the journey we've had over the last few years with interactive virtual classroom programs, and I don't know that I ever thought of this until I started doing it, is actually doing research on the topic in pre-work. Pre-work in many companies has been dropped, and it's because People get so many emails that if you send out an article that you'd like somebody to read before the class, they either say they either just kind of look at it and say, I don't have time for this. Maybe I'll do it on the airplane. Or they do it and then they reply back with some questions and those questions just don't get read. They may get lost. So the pre-work is is seen as like something that's a nice to have. And oftentimes people don't do it. 
In our courses, we do very meaningful pre-work. And again, going back to interactivity, they're all interactions. So we'll ask people questions, they can respond to them in pre-work, they can see each other's responses. So that's really good because if you're sending emails around, you're likely not seeing each other's unless you're copying all on everything or replying all. And they also can answer polling questions. So what's been interesting about this for me is that I can be much better prepared as a facilitator by looking at their pre-work and and I actually can use it in the course, which people expect that. If you're going to ask me to do something in advance, I expect you to at least make some references to it during the course. And, you know, that doesn't you've done pre-work in your career and that doesn't always happen. Uh, so that's been a real great insight. And again, it's part of the learning experience, doing that pre-work that gets me a little bit engaged. I've had people say, this really gets me in the mindset for the course before I even come. And so that's been an exciting uh, new element of our learning experiences. Of course, that also puts an onus on the instructor to build pre-work that is relevant and that is going to yield some value back to the student during the class, the, the virtual classroom experience, right? Right. And this is one of my advantages. I, I work with co-leaders who are subject matter experts, and I am not only a facilitator of interactive virtual experiences, and I really enjoy it, but I'm also a person who's been in the shoes of the participants I mean, I was a CPA. I was a client server in professional services. I worked with engineers in an oil and gas company. So I feel like I can put the participant hat on, not only in the pre-work and preparing them for that, but also in the course. And that's a nice compliment to have with another co-leader who may have a little bit different background. Steve, I recently, and uh, we had a catch-up call, and I learned that you, as we talked about my work, I learned that you were writing a book about writing right now. And I was really kind of surprised, like, wow, that's interesting. Uh, we've always had things in common, but now we have writing as a passion because we both described it that way. So why are you writing this book about writing? Uh, that is a really good question, Bob. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a writer fundamentally. I mean, it's, you know, I often tell people writing is not something I do. It's something I am. Um, I almost don't care what the subject matter is. I just love the craft of writing, uh, the craft of communicating. Um, I've always believed that the greatest compliment a writer can get is when a reader says to them, I can hear your voice when I read your material whether it's a book or a white paper or whatever. I mean, that's a really great compliment because what that means is that you're communicating uh, genuinely. You're communicating with your own voice. You're not trying to be someone that you're not. So this writing book, which is called Communicating the Right Way, spelled W-R-I-T-E, um, is my 84th book. It's a, it's a very bad habit. And, and as I said, I, I, I love the craft of writing. Like you, my job is it's to communicate 
and to teach other people to communicate. And it doesn't matter what I'm actually teaching. I mean, I, I work with organizations to help them build marketing strategies, to help them enable their sales teams to be more effective. I work with organizations to bridge the gap between technologists and leaders so that the leaders can understand what they're investing in. All of that really boils down to one single product, which I believe is clarity. And like you said earlier, the fact is that everything we say, everything we deliver, everything we produce, publish, begins with the written word. And as we've both observed many times in the corporate world, there's a lot of bloated, vague, run-on, boring stuff that gets put out there for a variety of reasons we can discuss later that frankly does a very bad job of representing the message the company is trying to convey, that representing who they are. I mean, I believe that what you write is a reflection of who you are. And so if you write in a bloated, vague, boring style, you're going to come across as bloated, vague, and boring. And, and, and oh, by the way, so will the company you work for. So is that really what you want to deliver to people you're trying to influence, whether they're customers or other constituencies, right? So I hope that answered your question. So you're demonstrating your own passion for this with your, your readers who buy your book, but also with your, your clients who you've worked with over the years. And that kind of leads me to my second question. I know you work with a lot of companies, you prepare written deliverables for them, whether it's a report or a recommendation. And you, you probably see their writing. And one of the things I'm working on now is I, I train people in presentation skills. And all, very quickly, when people hear presentations, they think PowerPoint. Well, I PowerPoint's been around since I first met you. When Windows 95 came out and PowerPoint was packaged with the first version of Office. So we've had PowerPoint for 25 years and we have now a landfill of bad PowerPoint. What, what, what has caused that to happen and how can we dig out from that? Do you think that's even important? Oh, it's hugely important, and I love I love your landfill analogy. I think that that really captures it beautifully. Um, it's fascinating to me how closely related, or if you'll let me steal a word from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, how intertwingled presentation skills and writing skills actually are. Because in the final analysis, they're both about communicating. Whether you're writing a message that needs to be delivered to a market that you want to influence, or you're standing in front of a group of people, the only reason you're standing up there is to communicate something. Whether you're a stand-up comic or a corporate executive, you're, it, it's the same message. So here, here's a couple of things. First of all, I think there are a couple of problems. The first one is that far too many people use PowerPoint as a distraction. And what I mean by that is, and I know you've seen this and the people listening to this podcast have probably seen it more times than they can count. Some vaunted leader gets up on stage to deliver a speech with their laser pointer in hand and they start flashing through PowerPoint slides up on the screen as if it was a QuickTime movie. And those PowerPoint slides in combination with the laser pointer is basically sending a message to the audience that says, don't look at me, look at the screen. 
That's the last thing you want people to do. You're the presence. You're the message, not the PowerPoint deck. And then, of course, if you really want to make it worse, if they're using a laser pointer, which far too many people do, in order to use it, they have to face away from the audience. So instead of looking at their face, you're looking at their butt, which is, of course, the last possible thing that you want to see. Leave the laser pointer home to annoy the cat. I mean, that, that's my take on <laughs> laser pointers. PowerPoint should support the speaker, not the other way around. The second problem, I think, is what I call the Jurassic Park effect. Uh, you may recall there was a scene in the movie, the very first movie, where they're, they're in the laboratory at the beginning of the movie where they're watching the dinosaur eggs hatch for the first time, and Jeff Goldblum expresses serious concerns over whether this is a good idea. And they, of course, try to convince him it's a great idea because, after all, they've created dinosaurs. And his line is so powerful. He says, yes, yes, but you, you spent so much time and energy proving that you could, you forgot to ask whether you should. And we know they shouldn't because there are at least four sequels to the original movie that I know of, and none of them end well. <laughs> okay, my point with this is that just because PowerPoint has 1,700 features that allow you to spin the text in and have an orange background with red letters and add sound effects and and have courier type appear with clicking sounds from a typewriter doesn't mean you should use them. They don't add clarity. They add confusion. A PowerPoint should be, as I said earlier, a mechanism that supports the words coming out of the speaker's voice. The speaker should not be augmenting PowerPoint. It goes back to your, your landfill analogy, because a lot of people use PowerPoint to, to move quickly, right? Haste makes waste. Well, that goes back to the landfill. And what we're really saying, I think, is that it's all about clarity. PowerPoint is a confusing mechanism if it's wielded improperly, and all too often it's wielded improperly. And as a result, people leave more confused than they were when they came into the room. So one of the ways that we can get people's attention on bad PowerPoint is by asking them for samples of PowerPoint in their organization. Then we review them and we identify the things that we're teaching already that they didn't do well, such as starting a bullet point with a verb. And then we give them their own sample back in our courses and ask them, what's wrong with this PowerPoint? And when they're given the permission to critique, somebody else's PowerPoint sample, it's pretty amazing how they dig in and dive in and they're problem solvers and they see a problem, right? So they analyze it and then we can show them a better version, if you will. So that's something we started doing lately and it's been exciting to see how we may be able to help people. Absolutely right. And, you know, far too many uh, times you see somebody will take like a Word doc and parse it into a PowerPoint by simply putting bullet points in front of all the sentences and busting it up. And they're not doing themselves any favor, any favors by doing that, because really, again, they're not simplifying, they're not clarifying their message, they're simply presenting the same material in a different format, and that format isn't necessarily a good one. Your point about beginning with verbs is a great example. Uh, the whole, the power of PowerPoint <laughs> is that you add power to your points by beginning with a verb. So at the very beginning of the bullet point, we know what you're, where you're going, right? I mean, this is, this is the series of recommendations you're making to this client. And if you do that, if you use that properly, 
you can wield it really well and it can be very impactful, but all too often it's a shield that people hide behind. Well, you know, we don't know where this digital business world is heading, but it's one of the things that comes with it is speed. It gets back to why writing is a skill that we all need to be successful in our work today. And I want to go back to something I heard you say in a previous podcast. During this corona crisis, make this your sabbatical so that you can actually try to learn and apply new things that you haven't had time to do in your day to day. And I thought that's brilliant. What a great way to think about what we're going through. You still got to get your job done, but find some things that you need to work on and do it during this time. 